have a Bible, I, a copy of God's Word, please open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Here at Calvary, we've been working through our series in 1 Corinthians. It has been entitled uh, Counter Culture Christianity. And in a series like this, it's not cherry picking high points of Scripture. All of Scripture is a high point, in my opinion. But it's going verse by verse, word for word, through the Scriptures. And particularly, we've been doing that in 1 Corinthians this year and have speedily caught up to chapter 9. Chapter 9 has been on my to-do list in preparation with all sorts of interesting thoughts and feelings. <laughs> chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians is not an easy passage for a pastor, at least for me, to preach. There's a lot of different reasons why a passage can be difficult to preach, um, but this one is particularly potentially difficult um, for its own set of reasons. Um, I do not want to embarrass my wife. I kind of commented that I might share this t with her this morning, and she was very thankful to be in junior church this morning, helping out, filling in. My wife, in jest, mentioned and noted how thankful she was to be leading junior church because of the topic. Why? Are you ready for this? If you're a guest this morning, please don't take this wrong. Understand this is what's coming next in the series. But this passage is about paying your pastor. Anybody else want to come up here and preach this for me this morning? <laughs> it's about supporting gospel ministers. It's about the Christian right that the Apostle Paul had to be supported in the gospel ministry by those he ministered to. Because of finances being a touchy subject, and the passage really does deal with these particular areas and supporting the pastors and ministry for their labors, um, uh, that it is their right to expect financial remuneration. It, it makes it a little bit difficult to go through, but I, I tell you this, in through studying this, I have felt, this isn't arrogant at all, but I felt a little bit emboldened through prayer. The Lord's working in my life to say, hey, just preach the word, whole counsel of God, and uh, let the Holy Spirit do the work where it needs to be done. Um, I've been praying that visitors this morning would not be, get the impression, a false impression, this, this message is a normal thing every week, um, but that it is the Word of God, and uh, it's part of our expository series. And without excusing it at all, I just want to preface with those comments and let you know our heart, my heart. I also need to note this. I've learned and been greatly blessed by others on this topic. Other pastors, other preachers, other theologians have done a lot of different reading, a lot of gleaning from others and their treatment of the text. It is my purpose to always study and exegete the text first and then maybe reference others. And in many cases, the way I plan to treat this text in our study is very similar to others as well. I think it's very clear in this passage what's to be taught, and sometimes it works that way. And so I'm thankful for many others I've benefited in detail from in preparation for this. And I'd like to also preface this message with the fact that I'm not preaching with a personal agenda as your pastor. My heart before the Lord is right in that. And there's no personal agenda. I'm not preaching for a raise or any other such thing in this passage. But seeking to not avoid this, maybe it would be helpful for you to consider our assistant pastor. Maybe it would be helpful for you to consider the missionaries that we've sent out from this church as well as the Scripture says to consider your pastor this morning. So those things may be helpful. Another preface to all of this. You're going to like this one. Are you ready? This is going to make some of you so happy. You're going to be so excited. 
we're not going to get through this this morning. I look at the time before us and the amount of time we have here, and this is going to be somewhat of an introductory message, and I'm praying as I'm speaking, the Lord would figure out a way and, or show me a way to be able to land this plane here in just a few brief moments, and we get appetites wet, but maybe this was of the Lord This worked out this way, because maybe you can go and study and read on this passage and come back extra prepared when we revisit this again. If you're here only this Sunday, I'm sorry you missed it. Maybe on the, on the website, maybe you'll catch next week, but this is probably going to develop very fastly into a part one of a, of a two-part message this morning, okay? Let me set it up this way. In this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, all of chapter 9 and its context, so before and after chapter 9. So those of you who have been with us, you've been seeing the things before, preceding up to chapter 9. And then some of you already know the things that are coming afterwards, so the next several chapters, in fact, actually, 10 and 11 particularly. So the context around and particularly chapter 9. In this context, Paul is talking about the freedom to not use your freedom. Our liberty and freedom to not force our liberty and our freedom. And Paul illustrates this in a way that teaches us important principles concerning the financial support of God's man, God's men, gospel ministers of the word. Do you remember, I've noted this a couple of times, so you remember this by now. At this point in time in 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 7 particularly, it's as if we're hearing a one-sided answer to questions that the Corinthians were asking. Kind of like you're hearing the one-sided telephone call. Here we have it again. Paul is writing in response to alleged, um, likely, questions that the, uh, some of the believers in Corinth, the church there that he established, is writing for answers on. And so in answering one of the Corinthians' questions, Paul is dealing with those who claimed they had freedom to eat idle meats. Remember that in verse 8? We can eat idle meats. It isn't anything anyway. What is an idol? It is not really a god. The, the meat is not demon-possessed. I can eat it, whether it was offered to idol or not. It's less expensive. God created the critter that was slain so that I can eat it. It's good for my body. It's meat for me. I can eat it. And then you had other Christians in the congregation, remember this, that had just been born out of that by, and been saved out of paganism and idol worship. And so their consciences were, were young. They were, they were weak still. And so for a stronger, more bold Christian to say, come on over, let's have a pork roast together or, or something to that effect or something that was offered to an idol. Elsewhere he talks about this like in Romans chapter 14 other passages. He says it would be a stumbling block. It would cause offense to others. So don't force your freedom to the detriment and the harm to other Christians. This is what Paul has been teaching. This is what he's been talking about. And then we get to chapter 9, and we get a form of an illustration. The Apostle Paul now seeks to use his own life to illustrate what he has been teaching concerning causing offense and um, abusing the liberty that we have in Christ. We do have that liberty. And so Paul teaches, you may have freedom to do this or to do that, but don't do, if, do it if it is going to harm a brother or sister in Christ. Think about these things beforehand. You remember last time, Scripture teaches, yes, we have liberty in Christ, but our liberty, remember, is limited in love. Our liberty is limited in love. In fact, let me refresh your memory being this is only introductory this week. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So just back up one chapter and look at verses 8 and 9. Excuse me, verses 9 and then 13, rather. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Then skip down to 13, and it says, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world stands, lest I make my brother to offend. Our love for God's people, our brethren, the church, should be so clear, so should, be, should be so um, um, uh, real and important to us, because God commands so, that it should guide our practices in life. You mean to say, Pastor, there are things that, that, that you're saying that God's Word is teaching us that maybe we should not do, even though in and of themselves they're okay? Absolutely. And that's a refresher of what we've been studying in the last several weeks. So this is what Paul has been teaching, and now we come to f- chapter 9, and Paul uses an illustration. And in this illustration, now listen to this, within this illustration of his life, he uses two primary illustrations really, but in this illustration of his own life to illustrate this liberty and love principle, we gain very specific, very helpful, pointed principles on how we should conduct ourselves as a church when it comes to financially supporting gospel ministers in the middle of this illustration. Paul has made this principle of love and love and liberty clear, and so now he begins to illustrate it. And so all of chapter 9 is an illustration from Paul's life in that he could have used his liberty. He could have asserted, and he could have rightly and biblically expected to receive full financial support, to have no worries and to no cares when it comes to financial need by the, from those who minister to him. But he didn't use that right because some would have certainly been offended, and he did not want to be seen as extorting the church or preaching a false gospel or using the backs of those whom he ministered to for excessive gain. Paul, not wanting to offend, chooses not to exercise his liberty to expect to be financially supported in the ministry, but rather to work with his own hands to pay for his needs. In this case, making tents. Tent making. He and Barnabas, and, 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 and makes me- he makes mention of this, the bivocational work. In fact, it wasn't even bivocational. It was all secular vocation that supported financially. And the norm was to not even receive and not ask for financial support to those he ministered to. This is the example Paul uses. So, there are a number of principles that we would have looked through, and we're going to look through next time. I've said that. I think I've kind of beaten that horse into the ground to make it clear that we're not going to be here all morning. But to start things off, look at the first several verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. One of the very first reasons that he gives of why he should be fully supported in their ministry, in the ministry, why gospel ministers should expect and churches should normally support completely financially those who minister to them. Firstly, the Apostle Paul writes in to the doubting Corinths. Because he was an apostle. And this is exclusive to him and the apostles. 
Like the apostolic era has closed, and, 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 and I would believe and preach, and we teach a cessational position um, um, on, on these things. On the apostolic power and ability and miraculous works in establishing the church. But nonetheless, at this time, the Apostle Paul proclaims and sets forth his credentials as, I'm an apostle. I am an apostle. What does it mean to be an apostle? Well, he explains it. Verse 1 says, I am not an apostle. Or, excuse me, am, excuse me, am I not an apostle? That's the question he's asking, okay? So it's a little bit um, um, hints of sarcasm here in his question. He says, am I not an apostle? And the implied answer to this is, yes, I am an apostle. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not you my, wor- are not you my work in the Lord? It's these rhetorical questions. He knows they know the answer. He's going to explain it nonetheless anyway. But he knows they know the answer. And so he's making this clear and says, I am an apostle. In Paul's case, he was an apostle. An apostle is simply defined as this one. You might write it down. A sent one. That is the definition of an apostle. One who is sent. A sent one. So am I a sent one? Yes. Sent by whom? By the Lord. Appointed specifically, particularly for that time. By the Lord, he was an apostle. Now, Paul's rhetorical questions were in response to the Corinthians' declaration that as Christians, they were free to do whatever they wanted. So he's setting this up. He's he's trying to illustrate this by using this example of himself. And Paul says, am I not free as well? See how he lumps himself together with the other believers? Am I not free in Christ is all. You all declare your freedom. You all say that you have freedom to, to eat whatever meats and do so, what, so what, whatever sort of things that you deem that you can do because you have knowledge, as he says in verse 8, and, or chapter 8, because you have understanding and all these kind of things. But I'm an apostle, not only a Christian, but an apostle called of God to the work of the ministry. Can I not expect to be supported for this? Can I not expect to say I'm free as well to assert my freedoms? Even more, am I not free as an apostle is what the tone of verse 1 is saying. And although I claim the same thing, I have chosen not to exercise my right for concern of hurting others is what the apostle is saying here. This is my right. I'm an apostle. And by the way, to, in order to be an apostle, uh, um, he, he presents credentials of what authorizes a man of God to be an apostle. And there were certain scriptural criteria, and he presents those credentials to them to remind them and to teach those who were confused. So assuming some might doubt his apostleship, the apostle Paul presented um, two specific um, credentials evidences that he was an apostle, making this clear to them. There are several different things that require. The first we see in verse 1, are are you not my work in the Lord? To be an apostle, uh, and then in verse 2, we'll get to here in a moment, to be an apostle, one would have to have seen the resurrected Christ. That was one of the criteria. You would have had to have seen Christ after his resurrection. Did Paul see Christ? Of course he did. In fact, on several accounts he did. You think on the road to Damascus and God revealing himself to him. You think of other places. Paul had experienced seeing the resurrected Lord several times. You go to Acts chapter 22 and verse 17. 
In verse 9 of the very same chapter in Acts 22. You go to other places, several accounts throughout Scripture. Verse 2, though, goes back to our text, says, If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. So verse 2, I brought you the message. You ought to look at yourselves as the validity of me being an apostle. Now look at myself. What am I supposed to see? Look at the fact that you know the gospel because I've brought it to you. You have been taught the very word of God because I've taught it to you. You have grown under my discipleship. This church was established and started by the appointment of me as the apostle to plant it before you. These are things that, the, that Paul is, is setting forth. I brought you the message. Look at yourselves. Look at your growth. Look at your new position in Christ now. You are my seal. You are my living proof, the stamp of a seal. In, in, in olden times and in first century Christianity, for sure, in times I think even before that, a seal was a, was, you had an important seal in, in your, uh, your life or your family that was according to your name and an insignia that was on it. And whenever you would send something, um, we'll, we'll call it by mail at that time, or have something delivered, you would, you would pour some wax or a, a soft material and you would put your stamp of seal in it. And when somebody received it, if that seal was not broken, that seal said, this is, hey, this is from them. This is the real McCoy. This is it. And he uses this well-known reference to say, look at yourselves. The very fact that you are growing, thriving, gospel-hearing, living Christians is my seal that I am an apostle. You yourselves are evidence of these things. This is what he says. You know, as an apostle, don't I also, too, have liberty? And the implication is yes. But his answer is in verse 3, and we'll end with this verse. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. If you were to go to the original manuscripts, if you were to look at some of the, the, the original language and, 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 and flip the um, probably more a literal translation, would be to flip this, to say, this is my answer to them that do examine me. So verse 3 is like a a, a crescendoing conclusion to verses 1 and 2. So verse 3 is saying, these things I've said, these two factors that I've just given you, these two credentials, these are the things. This is my answer to them who examine me and doubt my apostleship, that doubt that I have freedom like you. These things prove otherwise. That's what verse 3 is saying. Now what in the world does this all have to do with everything? And this is where it would be difficult to close here and understand that we are going to revisit this. And look at a number of other things. But as we consider chapter 9, and as we prayerfully prepare ourselves to study again on this, we need to understand that using the example of how ministers are to expect, and it is right for them to, to generously and sufficiently be supported in the gospel ministry. That is their right, that is their liberty to expect. But it's an illustration and how the Apostle Paul said, this is my liberty, but I choose not to assert this right because I do not want to offend others. And so this is a personal illustration in the Apostle Paul's life of what we've been studying weeks prior. 
Christians, we must recognize that although something in and of itself may not be wrong, something in and of itself may not be evil, something in itself may be enjoyable, may be good in a time and a place, it still can be offensive to others, causing others to stumble, and thus being wrong and sin against the Lord. We must be prepared and willing to let love set limits on our liberty for the sake of the gospel. That's the nutshell of what the Apostle Paul is, looking, is, is, is writing about here this morning. And so next time we'll unpack some of these other details these examples, these, these, these truths that we need to understand in helping us think counterculture Christianity when it comes to supporting gospel ministers. Let's pray. Father, the hour has been long, but it's been good. Lord, I believe it's been good because we have taken the time to observe and to consider the, uh, uh, the Lord's t- uh, table this morning in communion. We have remembered what Christ has done for us. And Lord, we never want to take for granted that there might be those here this morning in attendance that observe these things. Maybe it's an enigma to them. Maybe they're, they're confused. Or maybe, Lord, you've been speaking to their heart and, and maybe their, their lives, in a sense, have been living a lie. And that they could probably rightly say today, maybe there's some here today that would not be able to say, I know exactly what's going to happen after death. I know exactly where I'll spend eternity. Lord, if that's the, the thought and the conviction of anyone in the room, I pray that they would seek one of us out to understand that we are loving, willing, and we are here. But one of the purposes of speaking to people like that, lovingly, not accusatorily, but lovingly showing from scriptures what you say on the matter. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the remembrance of Christ on the cross, Lord. May you be magnified. May you be praised. It is in Jesus, your precious Son's name we pray. Amen.